I'm right. Well, who are you and what's your relationship to me? How long have you known me? <laughs> My name is Kristen, and I am your brother. No. <laughs> <laughs> Should we start over? with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with essayist and English professor Kristen Van Tassel, whose work is quoted in two different parts of The Vagabond's Way. But beyond quotes, Kristen was a big influence on many of the themes I explored in my new book, in part because we grew up together. Indeed, Kristen is my older sister, and she taught me how to read when I was four and how to drive when I was 15. She was also with me on some of my earliest travel experiences in Kansas and other parts of the U.S. when I was young. Together, she and I talk about what it's like to try and learn a new language when you're in your 40s, and how she once took her family to north-central Mexico from north-central Kansas on a series of minibuses used by migrant workers. We talk about how food was a window into a country and its culture when she visited a former student in the Eastern European country of Moldova, and how food can be a great way to connect with the immigrant communities that live in your own hometown. Our conversation took place in the atrium of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. late last year. Let's listen in. This season of interviews is about, um, it ties into The Vagabond's Way, and I think I didn't set out to include you again and again in The Vagabond's Way, but I grew up with you, and so we sort of traveled together, and we have continued to be part of each other's travel lives. Um, and so where, where are we right now? Right now we're in Washington, D.C. We're in the atrium of the National Portraiture Museum. Yeah, it's a beautiful big space. Quiet, there are trees growing in here. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually really beautiful. And we came here late enough that we actually haven't gone through and looked at the portraits yet. Have you been to the portrait part of no, the museum? No, I haven't been to this museum before. I've been to other museums, but not this one. Well, I think it's, I think it's ironic that we're hanging out here in Washington, D.C. because there's a lot of, you know, data points in our travels as young people, but Washington, D.C. was a very important part of the Hadley Junior High, Wichita, Kansas uh, yearly cycle because I think the first time I ever got on a plane, on a jet plane, was to fly to Washington, D.C. for the ninth grade civics trip to Washington, D.C. Was it the same for you? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, with Mr. Reeves, um, rest his soul, great guy, hilarious guy. <laughs> Very intense history teacher, and he had this, I don't know how he did it, he would take a bunch of 14 and 15-year-olds to Washington, D.C. every year. Right. So, yeah, we're, we're having this conversation in a travel setting. It's funny how, completely by accident, you ended up being in the book a number of times. Again, because I grew up next to you. Uh, and so I just want to talk about a few of these things. One is um, your relationship to where you are. Where do you work? I teach at a very small college called Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas, which is... Central Kansas, rural Central Kansas. And what historically makes Lindsborg, Kansas unique? It was settled by Swedish immigrants and the town of Lindsborg has really hung on to that identity and celebrated it. So mm -hmm. the town is full of lots of markers of Swedishness, including painted dollar horses all over town and lots of little shops that have something to do with Sweden. And so Lindsberg actually appears in more than one chapter of The Vagabond's Way because it's sort of in our neck of the woods and Kiki, my wife, and I walked there one day during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But then also in contrast, I mean, there's this very strong immigrant texture that goes back more than 100 years in Lindsborg. But one thing that really fascinated me about your own life in recent years when your sons were younger is that 
you asked around and you found a shuttle bus that took the local Mexican migrants back to their part of Mexico. So tell me about a little bit about this trip wherein you took a series of buses to this ran seemingly random part of Mexico and the only real connection you had to it was the fact that a lot of the service economy in our part of Kansas is populated by migrant immigrants from that part of, the of Mexico. Yeah, I was, I was taking Spanish lessons at the time. I was trying to learn Spanish as an adult. It was a result of visiting Mexico. Um, now it's been 10 years ago. And uh, we were originally planning to drive to the border, park our car somewhere, walk across the bridge. You and, and your family. Right, my, so David and the kids, uh, and we also took Quinn and Maya, so some family friends. Mm -hmm. uh, we had other people's children with us. <laughs> we were gonna, we were gonna walk across the bridge and then take the the bus system in Mexico to get to Guanajuato, mm. which is in central Mexico. Where you had been before? Right, I'd been there before. Um, the bus system in which in um, Mexico is quite good, mm -hmm. and then my but my. My Spanish teacher, uh, who's from El Salvador, but she said, that's a terrible idea, don't do that. Uh, and she said she knew about a bus, um, so it's like the equivalent of a Greyhound bus that went down to Zacatecas, Mexico, a couple times a week. It went, like it started in Chicago and then went down through Salina, um, which is right, the biggest right. town in north central Kansas. Right, exactly. Um, and so I went to this, this local Mexican grocery store where the tickets were sold. <laughs> they seemed surprised uh, that I was asking for four tickets, uh, round trip tickets <laughs> down to Zacatecas. But I bought the tickets. And what was interesting about it was that as soon as we stepped on the bus, it was 100% Spanish. Uh -huh. And um, so it was almost like arriving in Mexico once we were in, on the bus in Salina, Kansas. Oh. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of people who now live in Kansas, central Kansas, who are going down to visit family. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were families traveling together, you could tell. Um, this ties into a different chapter I have, not one that quotes you, but just the idea that as travelers, we often rub shoulders with travelers who are just as travelerish as us, but they're not tourists, right? Mm -hmm. um, that when I was in Damascus, I heard this gospel singing and I followed the noise to this Sudanese refugee church. And it was really interesting. They're, they're really smart people. They spoke multiple languages and they weren't traveling for leisure. In fact, they had no idea where they would end up and they were looking for sponsorship from places like the US and Canada. But they were travelers too. And w w mm -hmm. I've talked about, uh, I've written about, in the book about ethnologists who are studying the Hmong up in, in Laos. And the more they talk, the more they realize that some of these Hmong have cousins in LA and, and Minnesota and have <laughs> been tourists in their own right as they go to visit these places. And so I think there's a much more complicated travel landscape than we get. And I think it's, it's really interesting. And again, the chapter that, that I mentioned this in is about seeking the global locally, that once you stepped on that bus in Salina, Kansas, suddenly you were kind of, in a sense, in Mexico. Did you get the sense that you were the first local peop gringos to ever get on that bus? <laughs> that's what it felt like. You know, I don't know, but that's mm -hmm. what it felt like. And, and this might be a challenge for my listeners, is just to find some wrinkles in your own community that are a window into some other part of the world. Right, right. And, and oftentimes this, this can be like a restaurant, you know, mm -hmm. that you might have an Ethiopian restaurant. I know that here in DC, you're in, in your, where you're staying, there's an Ethiopian restaurant. 
And I think talking to people, taking an active interest can sort of be a window into where those people came from. And I had forgotten that it was your Spanish tutor who put you, who's from, not even from Mexico, from El Salvador, right. who put you in touch with somebody else. And then pretty soon you had this adventure that you had, had you just been gone to a travel agent or looked online, there's no, there's no, if you're, if you're not a Mexican worker with family back home, then um, there's nothing telling you as, as a gringo American to get on this bus. Right, yeah, like, and, and grocery stores are actually this, this space where you can find, like, where you can enter a very different place. Like, the, uh, it was at a grocery store where these tickets were sold, and just a block away from that Mexican grocery store is an Asian grocery store, which, um, where we had to go in, uh, when we were looking for a dish um, that Chantal, my niece, who grew up in Hong Kong, wanted to make. Mm -hmm. It wasn't at the standard grocery store, and so we went in there, and it feels like a completely different space. Hmm. Uh, and you then meet people who you otherwise uh, might not even pay attention to or notice uh, mm -hmm. in your home community. So, yeah, there are these, these spaces, even in a small, very white, rural, uh, small town or city. It's a small city, like Salina, Kansas. Just About 50,000 people. Right. A little, little fewer, maybe. But right. yeah, and, and so I think that if you're just sort of in your own routines, this is another thing, and I'm not always good at it myself, just sort of getting out of, out of your own beaten path at home. Mm -hmm. You know, the errant, your favorite grocery store and your favorite restaurant and the movie theater and stuff like that. If you can find for ways to go to new neighborhoods, shop in new places, talk to new people, then suddenly you can realize how international it is in your own place. Uh, and I remember going into the Fresnillo restaurant, and there's many, there's a lot of, there's more than one, there might be a half dozen like small mom and pop Mexican markets in Salina, owned by different people. Maybe they're from different regions of Mexico, I'm not sure how it works. But the, uh, the Mexican restaurant called Fresnillo, or Fresnillo's, um, when I was in there, every time I've been in there, they have rodeo on the TV, you know? <laughs> right, right. Most of the people there uh, uh, are eating, are, are, are Mexican-Americans, or and they have a clientele that is non-Mexican-Americans, but it's a very cowboy part of Mexico, it feels like. Mm -hmm. that, that right, right, it, right. It's right. a very rural sensibility that these aren't people from Guanajuato or Mexico City. Right. But these are more country people. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I think the, the verbal parallel I used in the book was that in learning, in going to North Central Mexico, you learned a little bit about North Central Kansas because this is where all the grandparents of the Mexican folks who live in North Central Kansas uh, come from. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, and the t and the, the little store, the little grocery store where I bought the tickets, also had like a whole wall of like Western wear. Mm -hmm. So um, cowboy hats, cowboy belt uh, belts, mm -hmm. and. Um, jeans. So anyway, yeah. I, I think it's, and this is just one example in one fairly small town that Fresnillo's is next to BT Asian Market, which is right. kitty corner from Banchet Market. Right. Like there's two Asian markets with an eyeline of each other. Right. And maybe one is Vietnamese and one is Laotian. I'm not sure what the um, differentiation is because I regret I haven't actually chatted up the owners of those markets. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's actually in the same the same. Um, little shopping f storefront where I used to get a haircut and now get cigars and that's where my liquor store is. Mm -hmm. um, Kiki, my wife, goes to the Asian store sometimes because she likes to prepare Asian food. And it's interesting how pan-Asian it is, the, the Asian community. And right. Salina right. is Southeast Asian, but there's good kimchi to be had mm -hmm. for Korean food to mm -hmm. be had there. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so I guess it just says that like, if you live in a big city, you have no excuse for finding all sorts of international right. things happening. Right. And, and in fact, I remember there was a Lebanese guy who, in the old Red Lion Inn restaurant north of Salina, right. mm -hmm. 20 years ago, right. he served really great Mediterranean food. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think food is a great window into discovering places, as is apparently language lessons. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that, ties, that ties into another thing that I quote you directly in the book, because you wrote an essay for Wraparound South, for a literary yes. magazine. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you sort of talk about how you started, you were in your 40s before you started taking language lessons. Right. <laughs> and you were not very good in high school. You weren't just that serious. You got an A, but in a way that you get an A without really learning I the language. I didn't take Spanish in oh, did high school. did you not take Spanish? I took Latin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh, you're the proper big sister, yeah. I took <laughs> I, Spanish because it was supposed to be easier. <laughs> I studied reading Spanish for my PhD. Okay. Uh, and so I took, like, I. I learned how to read a short academic piece um, because it was a requirement of my PhD, but I didn't, had never tried speaking it uh, well, as a language learner. Let's so. pivot a little bit because I think this is interesting. And I think you've written very, you know, open-heartedly about what the task of trying to learn a new language in your 40s. Mm -hmm. So what made you decide at age 40 whatever that you were gonna learn Spanish? Well, I, I went to Central Mexico for an academic conference and uh, at the suggestion of a friend, actually, and when I went there, I met uh, somebody who's become a, a really close friend, Jorge. I actually, this is a bit of trivia. Jorge helped me translate some of the untranslated Spanish language things. I, he has a credit in the Vagabond's Way. Right, I know. Yeah. I found it and I took a picture and sent it to him, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's really funny, these connections. You randomly met a guy in Mexico who sort of deepened your interest in Mexico. It led you to a completely different part of Mexico and it inspired you to study Spanish and it connected me with a guy who, when I was trying to find more Latin American voices in my new book, and they weren't translated in English, he just shrugged and translated them for me. Right, right. It was one of those trips where, like I went to this um, city called San Miguel that has a lot of English speakers. It, a lot of retirees in right, San Miguel. Like, like a huge population of expats who live there. And mm -hmm. so there's all this English language stuff. Um, and it was an English language conference. It was actually a bilingual conference. But other than that, like, um, I was used to traveling in places where people spoke some English, um, but that wasn't the case. Like if you stepped outside of that English speaking culture in San Miguel, people didn't know English. And it made me aware of how I know, like how I knew nothing at all uh, in Spanish. And um, it was difficult even to order food um, and count out, figure out how much money they needed because I didn't, understand anything and I was embarrassed I mentioned this to, to Jorge and uh, I said you know if I was to live my life again I would that's what I would change I would try and learn another language and, and he's like well you still can um, <laughs> and I'm like well actually no I'm too old and he said no you're not you know and so uh, so I decided to try, to give it a try, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put a link to your essay, Swallowing Fear in San Miguel de Allende, <laughs> in, in the show notes, because that was really interesting that you, in a literary con uh, conference, there were some, some Mexican dissidents from 1968 um, who were speaking, and one of them 
said, I'm going to swallow my fear and, and give this speech in English. Right. And that was a great example for you. I think that sort of made you realize you sort of had to study Spanish if this woman of letters uh, could give a speech in her second language at a literary conference. Right, right, absolutely. And so then, but actually I quote you in another essay you write for Wraparound South. At the age where you started to study Spanish, you realized that Spanish is something that you would never, that would never belong to you, but it's something you mm -hmm. could at least try to carry around. So talk about that a little bit. Talk about your, your journey with studying Spanish as a person who is in their 40s and now is in her 50s. And it is now in conversation, it's been in conversation with your life for about 10 years now. Right. Well, I mean, learning a second language has been deeply humbling <laughs> experience. Often it feels humiliating <laughs> because I'm not very good at it. And I don't like not being good at it because mm. language is my thing, you know? Like I'm a good reader and speaker of English. You uh, have a PhD, you're, you're a professor. Right, right. I teach writing. Who teaches writing, writing yeah. Right, it's read literature. Um, and so, and I'm still not very good at it for lots of reasons. Um, and my study of it has been a, a little bit inconsistent in ways. I, I think it's it's been really important to me though as a teacher. Um, partly because I've always been a good student. Uh, like I was, and then I chose something that I really loved and was really good at. And that's what I've been teaching. But a lot of my students don't care about writing and aren't good at it and don't want to do it uh, and feel frustrated. Um, and now I think I understand that in a way that uh, I couldn't before. Um, and I think that that's important. I think it's probably changed my perspective as a teacher and made me a better teacher, a more empathetic one because of this, of this study. Um, Knowing what it's like to be a learner. Right, right. No, to learn something that doesn't come easily, mm. um, that's hard, and that you work at it for a long time, and you're still not good at it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so... <laughs> well, the second right. half of this interview is going to be in Spanish, so if you're ready. <laughs> it's not going to go well. Right. <laughs> well, in part because your interviewer is pretty crap at Spanish himself. You have to be willing to, and actually I've learned this in part from you, because you're very good at just like trying to speak really bad, uh, badly in whatever country we're in, uh, in order to communicate and get by. But to, to learn a language, you have to make lots and lots and lots of mistakes. And um, it's hard to keep on doing that, choosing to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, and I think that's one reason why I'm not good at languages myself, is that I like, I like to keep my cards close to my chest. I don't like being that vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I don't like being that obviously wrong and making mistakes and saying the wrong thing all the time. Right. Um, in Korea, I got, I learned to read Hangul pretty fast, but my Korean itself was slow in coming, in part because I was a little nervous about trying to use my Korean on people. Um, and, you know, Spanish and, and French and some of the things I have little bits of, but I've never really given myself over to it. It's a strange thing to admit. I've been a travel writer for a long time, and a lot of my colleagues speak a second language and sometimes a third, fourth, or fifth language. Mm -hmm. um, and so my, <laughs> I always tell my audience that I'm a, I'm a case in point that you don't need to be fluent in a lot of languages to travel. That, um, and one thing I learned in Korea is just learning to speak very simple English, very basic things, learning a few basic phrases of different languages. Now, 
since you have committed yourself to this, we've actually traveled in Latin America together. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite Christmases ever, we were down in, in Uruguay. I talk about being in, in uh, Punta del Diablo when I was there and how I really enjoyed just being there and really not really having a very much structure to my day. Um, and actually, the chapter that I quote your essay in as the epigraph was on that same trip in, in Buenos Aires, um, walking around and sort of trying to find the Bukebus ferry terminal and being lost in a way that sort of made my day more interesting. And there's sort of wandering into flea markets that I didn't know existed and like the dock workers were playing soccer at lunch and they invited me to give it a try and then you know, they kicked me out of the game because it wasn't very good. And, um, <laughs> that in this place where I should have I should have not been lost, but somehow I was lost, but not in an urgent way. I was just trying to buy a ferry ticket for a couple of days from then. And being lost opened me up to that corner of, of Buenos Aires, which is sort of an industrial dockside part of, of, being, of uh, Buenos Aires. And so I think I quoted you from the essay that, that getting lost and then getting unlost is a way of receiving the unexpected. So as a traveler, how has being lost informed your experiences i mean i have multiple experiences with being lost okay yeah. <laughs> one was from uh in louisiana i took a group of students to new orleans um, for a travel writing trip it was the first time i had been to new orleans uh, it was shortly after uh, hurricane katrina it was my first year of teaching at bethany college and uh, so I didn't know what I was doing at all, uh, and I was often lost, and, and somebody who was uh, from the city helped me sort of find my way. That was interesting. I've been really lost in Kenya. Okay. That's a, that's a different story, and that was, that was an, an important moment of getting lost, and then having lots of help finding my way back. Well, you, that was on a run, wasn't it? Right, yeah. Because you and I both grew up as, as track team people. Right. And so at that age, it doesn't matter if you're in another country, you're going to go for your run, right? Right. And so tell that story. I was a yeah. college student, um, and we had gone to Kenya with a school trip for, uh, you know, it was three weeks. Um, it was class. And I was... I was a member of the cross country and track team uh, and we trained every day, lots of times twice a day. And I hadn't run for like five days on that trip. And so we finally got, you know, we stopped our, saf we've, our safari finished. We went back to a big city and I thought, okay, I can go on a run. Um, this was in 1990, so pre-cell phone and <laughs> I don't know, it's just so foolish. I uh, was just gonna do what I do in Kansas where uh, all the roads are set up on a grid uh, right. and everything runs north and south and east and west in a straight line. So I was just gonna run out and I was gonna run back. That's, right. all, that's what I was gonna do. Uh, so I ran out and I got completely turned around and on my way back, I, didn't, I had no idea where I was, where I was going. Um, I had not taken anything with me. Um, all I knew was the name of where I was staying. Um, and it was like the that. Methodist guest house. Okay. That's all I knew. Uh, I didn't know the address. I didn't know the phone number. Mm -hmm. um, and I had no money. And so... <laughs> and you were in running clothes. And I was in running clothes. Uh, and, you know, very white, red hair, 
freckles. Um, so it really stood out uh, to, for a woman to be running on the street. I mean, I know that there's all these famous uh, distance runners, men and women from Kenya, but I didn't see any of them out there when right. I was running. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was hopelessly lost. Um, and so like, I started by asking, uh, like many people have a guard uh, by their house okay. uh, in Nairobi. And so I started asking the guards if they could tell me where the Methodist guest house was. And they're like, no. <laughs> and that's another thing is that people speak, you know, some English there. Mm -hmm. It was a British colony. So if I, if I had been in another place like Rwanda where nobody speaks uh, uh, English at all, I mean, I would have had a major, major problem. Um, Finally, one of them directed me to a police station, mm. and I got to the police station, and it was this older man um, who seemed very wearied and beaten down, but he was kind, um, and <laughs> he didn't know where the Methodist guest house was either, but he looked it up, uh, mm -hmm. figured out where it was, and then he said, okay, so you take this bus, and then you need to transfer to another bus, and he said, it, you know, told me how much it costs, and so I had to... I had to confess that I had no money. <laughs> so he like dug through his drawer and found some shillings for me, walked me out to the bus stop, um, made sure I got on the bus, told the driver where I needed to um, switch buses and I got a ride home. And so like this incredible kindness from strangers that mm. I did not deserve uh, was, it was a really important lesson in lots and lots of ways, including the fact that I don't know, just like going on a run in the first place was just this silly, very American, self-absorbed thing. Um, just going, like the, the thoughtless way that I went out on this hmm. run um, was very entitled. Um, right. And so I, uh, you know, I, I felt um, embarrassed and ashamed that I'd made that uh, that choice, and and by the way, I hadn't, I hadn't told people where I was going. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I may have told a few people on the trip that I was going out on a run, that I'd be back soon. Mm -hmm. And so the sponsor, the faculty sponsor, was you know, just deeply worried when I got back. You know, mm -hmm. people were really freaking out because right. I'd been gone for a long time. It was after dark. Oh. Um, you know, when it started getting dark and I was still wandering around, that's when I started to freak out. I should probably mention I was crying when I, you know, sort of stumbled into the police station. And right. so, yeah. Anyway, it was, um, it was an important experience uh, about sort of thinking about where I came from and the assumptions that I brought to that. Uh -huh. uh, and then also just the generosity and kindness of strangers. Um, it's interesting know. the different epiphanies of being lost. Like when I was lost in Buenos Aires, I just... I was sort of charmed that I, that being lost allowed me to see things that I wasn't looking for. Mm -hmm. it, it's almost like going into the, you know, the, the Mexican or the Asian restaurant in Salina, Kansas, and sort of suddenly seeing a new part of the city that you're never encouraged to see, but suddenly you realize is there. Whereas it sounds like you, you had harder lessons than that, that you sort of, you learned your entitlement and privilege and you learned kindness and, and you just sort of learned Maybe some resourcefulness? I mean, did, were you going through worst case scenarios in, in mind? <laughs> right, spending the, like, wandering the city all night. The, right. Those kinds of things, yeah. 
I'd also like made a turn into like a, off a busy street um, or I somehow ended up in a residential area, you know, where mm-hmm. there weren't street lights and things right. like that. And so I was starting to get really nervous um, and yeah. <laughs> but I think it also makes you realize that, that there's a lot of people wandering around the world with little or no money or and little or no belongings. I remember when mm-hmm. I went around the world with no luggage 12 years ago, um, the idea of traveling with no luggage was a novelty for me, but I think a lot of people travel with very little just because they don't have much mm-hmm. or they can't take much or mm-hmm. because they're migrants or refugees, then you know their things have been lost in, in some situation and they just kind of have the clothes on their back and a few possessions. So in a way it put you in what, like a different socioeconomic class or I guess you sort of had, you obviously weren't from there, right. you know, so the people were going, would take an interest in you. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what are all the lessons and epiphanies from that experience? Because did you reference that in your Wraparound South essay? No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't. Yeah. It's something that I've written about a number of times, but mm-hmm. it's never been like sent out. <laughs> well, you sent, you used the phrase receiving the unexpected. Uh-huh. And in this way, receiving the unexpected was sort of a little bit unsettling. So are there other place, times where you've been lost and you've received the unexpected in a way that has been sort of charming? I mean, I've been lost other times. That was definitely, I mean, that, that particular memory is just sort of seared into my understanding of travel. And it was fairly early in my travel life too. I hadn't been to very many places um, before that trip. And I'd never been in a place where I wasn't sort of being guided around or, you know, pointed, shown what I was supposed to be seeing, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I I get lost every time that I go to a place, a new place. Um, it, It seems to be sort of a standard part of traveling. I think that it's because you personally have a bad sense of direction or that no. anyone who's pushing the envelope is gonna be disoriented? Yeah, I think, I th- I think the latter, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that I've got a pretty good sort of spatial memory and that sort of thing. Um, however, like in the, in the case of Nairobi, it was like just, it was, a, it was a place, a city that was so different from home or from where I went to school in Oregon that mm-hmm. it was really difficult to I was not at all prepared to navigate it. I mean, I haven't traveled a whole, like a lot of my traveling, significant traveling has also been without a a smartphone. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that that sort of traveling, you're inevitably are getting lost and you just have to ask a lot more people Mm -hmm. um, for help. And and I think that that is really at odds with, um, you know, the independence, that is part of our culture, uh, part of American culture, independence, mm-hmm. and this idea that we can do things on ourselves, by ourselves, we can figure it out, um, that we know the way if we just like look at the map, that we're smart people, we can do stuff. And mm-hmm. so um, needing help uh, and accepting help too from people who are very different from us, who we don't maybe share much in common with at mm-hmm. all. I don't know, I think it's an important well, I think it's just an important way of sort of seeing yourself and who you are and how you're entering the world and thinking about it. So, yeah. yeah it used to be just it used to be just what you had to do as a traveler. You had to leave mm-hmm. yourself open to people. I think the smartphone method of travel puts us in bubbles and it sort of reintegrates the idea of 
crowdsourcing information or of using strangers to find some place. It's, it's more a digital level thing. You're following crowdsourced mm -hmm. apps and recommendations rather than looking on the street. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess there's a generational aspect to that. I, I think that a runner in the year 2023 wouldn't have the same problems that you ran into mm -hmm. um, all those years before, 33 mm -hmm. years before, mm -hmm. because they'd have a smartphone. It would be ridiculous for them not to run with their GPS. Uh, right, right. And even my students, like I taught this, this travel uh, journaling class this year, mm -hmm. and even in that, that class where students were talking about traveling to places on campus or in Lindsborg or, you know, in the central Kansas area that they hadn't been to before. Um, when I suggested that they not use their phones for those travels, those excursions, mm -hmm. they told me uh, up front it was unsafe, that it was not safe to travel. Even in Lindsborg, Kansas? Right, yeah. Like even to drive somewhere in Kansas that they hadn't been to before without their smartphone. What did they mean by unsafe? What did they think would happen? I'm not sure. I think that they were worried that they would get lost and then, I don't know, um, not know how to, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I understood, um, but I was really surprised. I, I do think that also like just knowing how to get around without, you know, the phone telling you is such a foreign experience hmm. um, to people, to young people who've grown up with a phone, yeah. that, that it does feel frightening. Well, I, had to, I have several chapters in The Vagabond's Way about technology and balancing its utility against it, the way it gets in the way of actual experiences. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to take a pretty light touch because I don't want to be the, the old man wagging his finger at the younger generations and mm -hmm. talking about how it was better in his day. Mm -hmm. But I think people forget how adaptable we are, you know, how you, you did fine. Mm -hmm. It was after dark, mm -hmm. but you came back unscathed and people were helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that baffles me that in Lindsborg, a town of maybe 3,000 people that's very pleasant and it's a little college town and there's dollar horses on the street and mm -hmm. people seem very helpful that people would be nervous about not using their phone. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a theme in what we've been talking about because we have Lindsburg, which is sort of middle of nowhere, Kansas, very pleasant tourist town actually, but it's middle of nowhere, Kansas. Zacatecas is probably not the first place people go to when they go to Mexico. Right. Um, Uruguay, Buenos Aires, yes. U Uruguay, yes, so less so in South America. You got very lost in Kenya. Mm -hmm. um, and this all leads up to, you went to Moldova. Yeah. Nobody goes to Moldova. <laughs> um, and you and I, actually, this gave me the idea to have this podcast that I have sort of appropriated your Moldova story so many times. It's as if I've been in Moldova. I have not crossed the borders of Moldova. Uh -huh. um, yet I'm so charmed by what you experienced there that it ended up in the new book as well, that I, I sort of use um, your experiences to talk about just seeking out what normal people are interested in in a given place. Because mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody we stopped here at the National Port Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. could name one tourist attraction in Moldova, let alone the, the capital city, let alone pronounce it correctly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what lens did you use to experience Moldova? Well, I had the privilege of going there with, uh, tra or like visiting Moldova with a Moldovan. So mm -hmm. I had a former student who had studied for a year at Bethany College as an exchange student uh, who was living and working back in her home, Chisinau, um, Moldova. And so I went to visit her. I was 
I'd, I was in Paris visiting you while you were teaching a class there mm -hmm. and decided to go visit Anna uh, in Moldova. And so I, and I was there a week or so, I think. And she, you know, I met her parents. Um, we just uh, spent all of our time um, doing things and hanging out with people that she knew. And so I got to see that place through the eyes of someone who lived there and loved it, yeah. Well, the uh, way I filtered this into the book is that you were on a mission to find soup. <laughs> um, and actually, in the, in the other draft, soup and salad, but it just, it was too confusing. Like right. each, each page of the new book is one page and soup and salad were just spreading it too thin. So I just decided it was soup. So um, how did, the search for soups and salads in Moldova affects your experience. As I understand it, both of them were delicious. Right, yeah. So Anna uh, took me, uh, Anna took me to um, a number of places and then she also fixed food for me. Uh, she's a great cook, as is her mom. And she has a, bake a baker Instagram. She like has tens of thousands right. of followers on Instagram for her bakery. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She's I'll put a, that in the show notes. <laughs> she's a superb cook. Uh, cook uh, and baker um, and it was funny because when she was at Bethany she you know students always complain about the food in the cafeteria but Anna's complaint was very specific she said that the the vegetables were bad um, that they were not fresh um, mm. that they did hardly qualified as vegetables but when I got to to Moldova, I understood that they, um, most people go shopping, and this is true in lots of countries, almost every day, um, and they get food at fresh markets and um, make, you know, they make dishes that were uh, composed of ingredients that they purchased that day. Uh, so she just fed me what uh, Moldovans eat and took me to restaurants uh, which served uh, Moldovan food and the food was outstanding it was excellent like I just had these amazing salads uh, all different kinds really fresh ingredients I suddenly understood why she'd been dissatisfied with the calf um, salad bar and and this is a poor country right, right Moldova exactly. is desperately poor but the the salads and the soups were fantastic right exactly um, and the the soup was so good um, and then they also it's not just like we had borscht um, but there's lots of different kinds of borscht uh, uh -huh. which is something that I realized when I when I uh, was there and and I was I was just astonished by how how good the food was like it was maybe the best food of any place that I've traveled and I came I was coming from Paris I was coming from Paris and the food in Moldova wowed me so <laughs> I think they're gonna put that in the Moldovan tourism poster <laughs> <laughs> the Kristen Van Tassel endorsement for Moldovan food. Now, I was understood that they were very passionate about food, too. They would, like, get in arguments about soup and salad. Right, and yeah. right, exactly. So it's something that they care deeply about. And, and I think that most, beca partly because it is a poorer country, that people, um, you know, they spend a lot of their day uh, preparing for and cooking food, uh, and they make their own food. Just a lot, a lot more people, I think, are involved in their own food preparation than at, like, in the U.S. 
So. I think this ties into something I talk about a lot, which is the idea of what wealth is and how travel can deepen your idea of what wealth is. Mm -hmm. And I often talk about time wealth, but I think going to places, you can go to a very poor country and realize they have, they're wealthy in terms of how they relate to family. They spend way more time with their family and their kids and their parents than we do in the industrialized world. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, Moldova is not a rich country, but they're very wealthy in terms of food and health and nutrition, not because they're on some special diet, but because mm -hmm. their wealth consists of good vegetables and um, mm -hmm. the patience to spend time making soups and salads. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think they value that kind of good food maybe in ways that we don't. Um, and it's a different kind of valuing than say a foodie, uh, you know, in America too. Uh, just sort of this assumption that um, families, um, that it's part of being a good family member <laughs> is eating well and, and, and having good food in the home. Yeah, there's no separation, uh -huh. you know, that it's not you're a foodie and that's what you do. It's just right. that this is a value everybody shares. Right. In fact, that's something I met a, an engineer from Oregon in Cambodia and he pointed that out to me about the Cambodian people that there's less separation between um, the duties of fatherhood and just living your day, you know, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. there was no rushing kids off to soccer practice or whatever. The, your kids were always sort of around in these rural parts of Cambodia he was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's some great context that you can sort of understand um, more nuanced understandings of wealth and how to live the texture of your life if you realize what the wealth currency is where you are. And in that part of the world, it was delicious vegetables. Well, we're in the National Portrait Gallery. They're actually kicking us out of the atrium right now. Can can you uh, can we walk and talk for a while? Sure. <laughs> um, and we may as well wrap it up. We can walk and talk, and you can think of this. This is, this is the exciting part of a podcast, ladies and gentlemen, is that the live podcast from Washington D.C. involves closing hours. So I guess how do we how do we wrap this up? What do we leave people with in terms of? Um, encouraging them to get lost in such a way that they don't end up with no shillings and have to go to a police station. <laughs> what is a way that you can stay open to being lost without compromising yourself? Right, yeah, I think that there's value in being uncertain, um, like exploring something that you're pretty sure will feel uncomfortable. So our listeners know we're, we're walking out of, into the Christmas market in this dazzling, beautiful part of D.C. But that's actually a piece of, of advice that I keep in mind too that ask local people where they eat. Don't just right. say where should I eat? Right. But like where do you eat? Where do you like to eat? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the uh, deviate podcast theme music. <laughs> actually it's not actually your son Cedar uh, is is the uh, producer and theme music writer for this podcast. One last one last thing as we as we boogie in the streets of Washington DC, Kristen. Um, for language people, I think if there was like an Olympic all-star team of people who've not done great at learning foreign languages, it's you and me. <laughs> um, for people who feel insecure about uh, learning another language, what advice might you give them? Um, yeah, you just got to go for it. You got to, um, uh, you have to let go of yourself uh, and, and, um, Actually, I think you've given me this advice and not be afraid to feel like a fool uh, and completely ignorant, uh, to feel like a dummy. Uh, you got to let go of that in order to learn a language. You can't learn a language without doing that. 
uh, without letting go of your self-respect, you know, feeling uh, like, without letting go of your dignity, I guess. Yeah. So I guess you've got to be fearless, fearless and foolish. Right. Two Fs. Exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, from the Christmas market in Washington, D.C., this is signing out from The Deviate with Rolf Potts and his big sister, Kristen Potts Van Tassel Podcast. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about the essays and poetry of Kristen Van Tassel, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Kristen Van Tassel's son, Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.